Welcome, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest to motivate and inspire you. Seth Teagle, a seasoned firefighter with over 20 years of service, who leveraged his passion for service and family to successfully venture into the world of real estate. Now, as the principal of the Stream Group, Seth has been instrumental in bringing property management, capital improvement, and construction all under one roof. His unique story of balancing a demanding public service career while managing an investment firm is a testament to his dedication and drive. Let's welcome Seth to delve deeper into his journey. I'm Darren Batchelder, an ex-corporate guy turned business owner and real estate investor. Have you ever wondered, how are you going to get from where you are today to where you want to be with your retirement investments? We discovered a better way, and we can help you get there. We have a four-step capital preservation and wealth building plan. Imagine having the financial freedom and time freedom to do what you want, when you want, and with who you want. A better way to preserve your capital, a better way to build your wealth, and a better way to save taxes. If you are a C-level executive or other high net worth individual, and you want to find out how, then get started by scheduling your discovery call today at darrenbatchelder.com forward slash investor call. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing. Be introduced to the players that are getting it done and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Seth Teagle. Seth, appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, just a little bit on how uh, we know each other, and then we'll get into it. So uh, this is the first time I'm actually talking to Seth. Um, Seth has been on a bunch of different podcasts, and I've seen him on social media, and I was interested in getting to know him better. So invited him onto the show, and he's been gracious enough to uh, to share some time with the listeners. So, you know, with that, I typically ask how many properties and how many units you're invested in is the first question, then we'll get into it. Yeah, so right now we have just under 2,000 doors. Uh, we're doing ground-up development and various other projects. So some of that stuff we manage in-house with our team, and then some of it we're just co-GP'd on. Awesome. So how long have you been doing this? Uh, I would say I got started in 2014. 2014. Okay. So, I mean, it's going on nine, 10 years almost, right? Yeah. That, and that's from initial thought of getting in real estate and, and work, starting to work for the, I worked for somebody originally when I got started. So you worked for, so let's jump back to your background. I mean, you, you have it in the background, the firehouse bros, you know, um, this is, I don't know it almost 160 episodes and you're the second firefighter that I've had on the, on the show. Um, so kind of share your background and what prompted you to get into real estate. Yeah. So I was basically work. I got into the fire service when I was 18, um, right out of high school, went to college and whatnot while I was working. But ultimately as I started having kids, uh, my paycheck just didn't go as far as it used to. And, and, uh, I was here in Columbus, Ohio working, uh, made good money, 
but it just was, I found myself always working overtime and always having to, um, be gone and away from the family. So I was looking for some alternative and what to do to kind of increase my income. And I reconnected with a guy that I went to college with. And when I uh, met back up with him, he was a multimillionaire real estate investor. And I was like, what happened? How did we go from being roommates to what, you know, <laughs> you're doing what you're doing and I'm doing what I'm doing. Like, where's the, where, what's the disconnect there? And so he walked me through real estate investing. He was wholesaling. He was flipping houses. He was had a single family buy and hold. And he gave me some really good kind of direction on what to do if I wanted to get into it. And I just followed that direction. It took some massive action. Uh, ultimately started attending some real estate meetups, met a contractor that uh, I ended up working for for about a year and a half as a project manager and managed his rental portfolio as well. And through that, realized that if I wanted to do this and actually have passive income or um, kind of like a life-changing financial advancement, I had to go bigger than just single family. So um, after a year and a half, I bought my first deal with one other investor. It was a 50 unit. And then I managed all the construction, the renovation, the business plan for that property. And when we refinanced a year, what, 14 months later, we pulled out a little over a million. Wow. So it was, to me, it was like proof of concept. It was a life-changing event. And I pretty much switched my focus at that point from being a firefighter to advancing in real estate because it was, you know, it was going to change my life. So that's what I did. That's, that's huge. You said a lot of great things there. One, you know, there's a lot of people that are in that same boat where, look, they might be doing what they enjoy, but it's tough to make ends meet, you know, with, with your W-2 income. And so, you know, we're both involved in multifamily real estate, but, you know, I would tell people that, you know, in order to, to supplement that and have multiple streams of income is to, you need to own, you need to be an owner. You need to be yes. an owner of, of some kind of asset. And so it could be multifamily, it could be single family, it could be, you know, something else, um, a business or um, stocks or whatever, but you, you have to be an owner. Um, I remember I fought, when I lived, so I live in Dallas now, but when I lived in South Florida, um, my pool guy was a firefighter and he, he did that as a second income. And I think there's a lot of people out there that have to have two and three jobs, you know, to make ends meet. But you were fortunate enough to have your, was it your high school buddy or college buddy? College. Your college buddy that, you know, you were able to go and tap into and say, you know, what'd you do differently, right? And yeah. so, but I applaud you for doing that because there's some people that just say, oh, you know, that person got lucky and they, they, don't, they don't take the time to try to educate themselves. But I think that, you know, and then you said massive action, you took massive action. You know, you, it's, it's hard to, you're not going to get anywhere if you don't try, try something, right? So, yeah. So, um, you know, in the multifamily world, what would you, how would you define, like, what problem do you, do you solve? Uh, as being an owner or who am I so, solving the problem so, for? Well, I think there's two components to it, right? So there's the, the, you're solving a problem for 
anybody that invests with you. And you're also mm-hmm. solving a problem for people that need a place to live, right? Yeah. So I, so it's a great question. And that's why I was kind of asking, because it can be two point, two part. I will say the majority of the properties that we buy that are existing construction, you know, everybody says value add, but what does that really mean? You know, we buy properties that either we can manage better or we can increase the value through making it just a nicer property. You know, there's a lot of people that have, you know, that that we've bought that maybe they bought in the late eighties and they just kind of let the property go. It's in a great area. It's an eyesore. It's a community problem or annoyance. Um, and when we've bought it, we come in and implement all kind of new strategies on the property and, and make it a more secure place, a better place for not only those that live there, but also for the community. So we solve a lot of problems in some of the communities that we buy. Um, and, and for investors, I think it, it just gives another option for them to invest in that maybe they didn't know of before, you know, the stock market, I was, when I was in the fire service, I always invested in the stock market through different channels that were provided to us, but I had no clue what I was doing and I never really monitored it. And I know a lot of people that have 401ks or Roth IRAs or whatever, like they put the money in, somebody else watches it. They don't really understand what's happening. You know, I had a conversation with my wife this morning who has a a Roth IRA lingering from when she was employed and just the losses are, you know, you have no control. It's, it's constantly going down. And so there's people that don't know anything about stocks. They just stick their money in. And then there's people that are, are educated that um, invest wiser or differently, but they have no protection from the gains. So if they bought the stock at 100 and they sell it at 500, they, you know, they're on the hook for all those capital gains that they made. And so they just don't have anywhere to, you know, for to use depreciation and other tax incentives in advance or uh, tax incentives to be able to use against that. So I think, like you said, a local level, we provide a, a safe, secure place for people to live. And then from an investor level, you know, it's something that's a more safe and secure investment that may sometimes not be as high as, you know, if you were buying Bitcoin and it was a dollar and it goes to 60,000, who can compete with that? Right. But you know, it, it's definitely steady. We we went we we went through COVID, and even now, and and our properties are performing excellently. So, so it's it's interesting, you know, to have you say safe and secure investment. Like I know, so I've been in it for five years, and I know the first thing that we bought, my wife and I bought a duplex, and that was scary because I always been in stocks. Like so, I was, and I had the capital, right? It wasn't like the you know, didn't have the capital. I had the capital, but it was new. You know, it was something mm-hmm. that I didn't fully understand. And, you know, you could buy a, a stock for $1,000. And, you know, when you get into real estate, you're typically talking about a larger, you know, a larger investment to get into it. Um, when we bought the duplex, I think we put $50,000 down and, and then got a, a loan uh, on top of that. And then most syndicated deals are, you know, 50,000 to 100,000, depending on the size of the deal and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, talk a little bit about why you think it's safe and secure, because there's people out there that they're like, this is really interesting. I've heard people are making good money at this, but it sounds risky to me. Or they have friends and family that have never invested in real estate. And they're like, watch out, 
you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's risky. So why do you say safe and secure? Uh, so I, I think the safe and secure part is really, I'm probably speaking more about who you're investing with than the actual asset, because the asset itself is going to do what it does. You can make projections and you can uh, believe what the rents are going to do and what you can do with the income. But really the person and the team that you invest with, if you're not investing on your own, like if you and your wife bought a duplex, it's just the two of you, you're really relying on that property management company to manage the property correctly. And if you're, if you're investing in a syndication, I think to me, the more important thing than the property itself is the team that you're investing with. And that's, that's what to me you have to vet. But if you are with a group that knows what they're doing, they're not going to put you in a deal that is going to be risky or they're not going to take risk that they shouldn't take. They should have evaluated everything correctly. And obviously the market can change. Things can happen, but if they're underwriting and they have experience, they should have kind of a a plan, you know, B and C in place, Um, which again for us is why we vertically integrated because we didn't like having like you would buy the deal and then you just turn it over to a property management company and you lose the control. And that's why, you know, is managing properties fun? No. Does it, is it employing all the people that we do? You know, it became a bigger animal than just investing. Now you're an employer, you have other businesses that are going on, but it was the only way that we could really make things more predictive uh, or be able to predict the expenses better and control the unknowns. And I think that's really what you have to look at is, one, do you want to be an operator? So do you want to buy yourself and then run everything? Maybe you're not the one going and answering maintenance calls, but you're vetting the property management company, you're vetting the location, you're vetting the the rents, making sure everything checks out. If you're doing that on your own, like you said, it's risky because it's unknown. You've never done it before. I highly suggest people attend real estate meetups, get a local mentor, somebody that knows what they're doing and you can just have a soundboard to ask questions to. If you're investing in a syndication, you know, to me, I've always said it's, it's the jockey, not the horse, the horse being the asset, right? I mean, if you're a solid operator, you're not going to buy something that, uh, or, or misrepresent something, right? That's the risky part. If you buy, if you invest with somebody that you don't know and they tell you this property is going to be great and it's going to do all these things, but really they're just after an acquisition fee or they're just after getting another deal done, they might put you in a deal that, that they should have never bought or that you should never have invested in. And, and so that to me is the risk. You know, the, the overall operations of the property are, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, so uh, I, I agree with, with everything you said. So now you, you mentioned vertically integrated. Um, I understand what you mean by that, but, you know, maybe explain to the listeners what that, what that means. Yeah, so we, I guess vertical integration in general terms means that we buy, manage, and control the assets for the life cycle of owning it. Um, there's some folks that will buy, uh, whether they syndicate it or they buy it themselves, and then they buy it, they close, they turn over the operations and control to the property management company, and then they just manage the management company. Um, and we, opted to integrate and and bring the management company in house because we just continued to like, that was always the, the break in the chain, if you will, is that third party management company, because they're not involved in our underwriting. They're not incentivized to make it a profitable property. 
you know, they're a for-profit company. And so that we always were getting killed with fees, hidden costs. It's a tough uh, business because they do a good job and then, and then the deal gets sold and then they have to go find another, another yeah. property. Um, but yeah, it gives you a lot more control. So I know syndicators that have decided to um, bring in house management, um, property management in house. I, I don't know where you were um, in the process, but you know, I've I've heard from a lot of people that it, you know, kind of when you get over a thousand doors, then it starts to make a little bit more sense um, to bring property management in house. What what's your take on the size? Um. Yeah. Yes. Because uh, I think what happens is, is you're, if let's say you, I mean, we, we probably did it too early. Um, I think we were, we were like around 600 doors uh, when we did it. And, and the problem you can run into is that you're the cost to have um, salaries, benefits, all those different things. You just can't spread those costs out over 600 doors. But if you look at management companies as a whole, when you're managing 600 doors, you're already in like one of the top tier areas of property managers. Most property managers and probably the ones that I'm talking about mainly are folks that are managing 600 doors and below. You know, if you bought a 40 unit or a 50 unit, that's a different management company than somebody that owns a thousand doors. You know what I mean? There's So if you're with an institutional management company, that's a different type of management company than what I'm talking about. But trying to scale your portfolio, you have to kind of weed through the, the people managing less numbers. And so they seem to be more inefficient and higher fees and, you know, it never worked out for us. So that's why we opted to go early into managing. Yeah. So, I mean, the options are, you know, once you buy a property, you can, you can hire a third party property management company. If it's not working out, you can, you can swap out and, you know, you still own that asset. You could say, all right, we're going to bring in this other property management company and, and you know, switch them out. Or you can ask the exist, have the existing property management company just put a new on-site staff. You know, maybe mm-hmm. the on-site staff isn't, isn't working. Um, and then, the th- you know, the, the total control is what Seth has done is, is brought property you know, management in-house. And now all the employees are in-house. Um, so that's, that gives you the most, the most control. And the ones that, and I don't know how, if you look at it this way, but most of the syndicators that I've talked to, they don't really look at the property management company as much as a, you know, a profit center as, as being able to control you know, their, their people and, and really have a pulse on, you know, the success of the property. Yeah. I think that's, that's accurate. I mean, we don't look at it that way either. Like if it breaks even, it has to obviously pay for the people that are there. And you're already going to be paying payroll to somebody if the property's big enough to have on-site staff. Right. So for us, it, it's like, we just, that money goes towards paying for people. They just work for us instead. And then they, we know that the, how they operate, what the SOPs are, the standards are, how they're, leasing. Um, and we were able to kind of make up the difference or cover all the things that weren't being done by previous management companies we worked with. That makes sense. So what's the hardest thing about doing this business now for you? Um, finding, finding good deals that actually underwrite, uh, are tough because of the rates and the different things that are going on. Um, I see a lot of deals that people, 
are leaving things out. And as you know, anybody can make a spreadsheet, say what it wants, but actually executing what you told people, I think is, is underestimated and, and is, it's tougher than what people think, especially, like I said, we just went through COVID. Now we're extremely, uh, well, I, I think they're extremely high interest rates compared to what they were back even in 15, 16, 17, uh, you know, and there's just a lot of moving parts and pieces. I just uh, had a big call with our insurance company because insurance premiums are going through the roof. I mean, the insurance companies are losing billions of dollars and they're dropping people. They're dropping properties with no claims. They're reducing their risk. They're, you know, their premiums are going up 30, 40%. We, we just had a property, the premium doubled, you know, it's crazy. You can't underwrite for that. No, you can't underwrite for that. So then you have to, you know, talk, going back to the jockey, right? You have to pivot and figure out where can we make up for this, right? I mean, that's the only thing you can do. Yep. Um, and so I think like that, and that's why we like being integrated to where we have the control because then we can kind of, I feel like we can maneuver better than maybe somebody else that is relying on that third party manager, because as their costs go up as a management company, they're going to push that back on you, the operator. And then you can push it back on the tenants, but only to a certain point. Right. You know, that's really, really depends on where you bought. You know, if you bought an area that maybe was true C-class area, you can only raise the rents to a certain point. Right. So it's, I don't know. Those are some of the, the nuances of things going on right now that I think make it tough. So it's interesting, you know, I've had a number of people say the same thing, like I, it's hard finding good deals. But I remember, you know, a year, two, three years ago, people were saying the same thing, right? It was, it was hard to find good deals. In, and you'd have, um, in today's market, you know, Volume, transaction volumes are down like 80% because there's such a difference between the, the bid ask, the price that the buyer wants to pay and the price that the seller wants to sell at. And, but a year or two or three ago, it was, you know, put it out to market, 20 offers, best and final, <laughs> then a second best and final. And like, yeah, you can be in the deal, uh, but to win a deal, you know, you really push the envelope in terms of, of pricing. So now, um, you know, there's less deals going going down. Um, but I would, you know, uh, it's just interesting to hear it's the same statement, you know, finding good deals is, and that's probably always going to be the, the case is finding good deals. The other thing I would ask you is, um, you know, I think that in today's market with, all the talk about a potential huge recession possibly coming or we're in it or it's coming or whatever, higher interest rates, higher insurance rates. Um, you know, cash flow is down on a, lot of the, on a lot of these deals that it's been tougher to raise capital from, from investors. Have you found the same thing? Um, I wouldn't say it's been tougher. I mean, we have most of the people that invest with us are people that know us. You know what I mean? I don't, we've never really, we've never had to do a 506C syndication. So I've never publicly advertised and relied on, you know, a crowdfunding source or just random people investing with us. I mean, most of the people that invest with us have invested with us multiple times or over the years. And I haven't had any trouble with that. So, I mean, most of the people have funded our stuff has been uh, repeat investors. Uh, and then we're working with some different uh, capital groups too that have money to place 
uh, and it's a different investor, but uh, like investor type, but uh, we, you know, we haven't, we haven't bought anything in a while. We've got some ground up development deals that we're working on in central Ohio. So when's the last those, deal that you, you purchased? Uh, we bought in probably a year ago. Yeah. So I'd say when I'm saying fall of last of 2022 through now is when I've heard from people that, it, you know, people are just, there's more investors that are, Maybe in a wait and a hold. Yeah. You know, well, and I say that last deal, but we closed on our one development that we're doing 150 acres in central Ohio. We, we closed on that in March. Okay. But actual existing multifamily has been a year. So what, talk about the types of deals that you guys do and the markets that you play in. Are you mainly in Ohio? Yeah, our bread and butter is in central Ohio. Um, we're looking in Jacksonville, Florida. We got a couple of co-GP deals in some other states. Um, there's three of us in the stream group and we've got some stuff in Salt Lake city, Utah. Uh, but that's because one of the guys lives out there. Um, but otherwise I would say our flag is primarily plant planted in central Ohio. So the Columbus area and anything within an hour of Columbus. And then, you know, there's a big difference between ground up construction and say an existing BC value add deal. So, so mm-hmm. talk about the ground up and how you look at that deal differently and how are the risks differently than buying an existing property? Um, so there's risk with both, obviously. Everybody would, I, or I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people had told me before, like, oh, ground up is the most risky and it's, you know, it's, it's super scary. But we went through the ringer on some of these value add multifamily that we bought where we said, oh, this wouldn't be such a big project. And then, it was a tremendous heavy lift and we didn't realize just how bad it was going to be. And then prices went up and you couldn't find labor and all these different things were going into it. So it ended up being a lot of time and headache. The ground up stuff though, I feel like is again, I wouldn't develop just anywhere. Central Ohio is a, there's a lot of crazy things going on here right now. There's a lot of companies and growth happening and people moving here. And uh, so for us, we're buying big tracts of land or entitling it or working through all of the feasibility. And so I think that's something different from the value at multifamily is there's a lot of planning. I'd say 90% of the work goes into planning these. And then when you actually start putting shovels in the dirt, like that's the, that's the, the, I wouldn't say the easy part, but that's all the planning's already happened. Um, and it's a little more predictable, but you know, we do feasibility on all the properties that we buy. So we know based on data and different metrics we look at that the project will be successful and here's the projected returns. Um, we work with local companies, the GC it, that are proven in our area uh, to be able to succeed. And we're pretty just thorough with the budgets. We have, I would say like built in second and, and maybe two or three plans if something goes awry, but you know, for the most part, the planning part and making sure that the property can handle the cost by making sure the density is high enough is really where a lot of the hard work goes. So do you, uh, when you do a development deal like that, do you bring investors all the way through the process or do you have some investors that come in buy the raw land 
um, maybe stay until it's entitled and then they're out and then another group comes in for the, for the ground up and the lease up or is it the same investor base going all the way through? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, I'll use the last one or the one we're in process. We, we brought in one investor between the three of us, GPs, our partners and him, we bought the land. Uh, it was 50, 150 acres. He will have the option to stay in it for its entirety or on that particular track of land, we're subdividing it. 105 acres will be residential. There's about 20 to 25 acres. It'll be multifamily, which we will build that out. And then there's another section that will be assisted living. Um, the plan right now is to, we bought it all, reparceled it. We're going to sell the single family off and probably the assisted living. And that will uh, pay off the bank debt, pay off the investor and have capital left to do the multifamily ground up piece. If he wants to stay in, he can just roll his money into that that single entity that would own that multifamily chunk. If he says, no, I want to get out, then we'll open up a round of funding for the buildup and it would be a different group of investors. But, gotcha. but that's the stuff that we've done. That's traditionally how we've done it. So that's the second time we talked about having one investor. So, which is different than a lot of the syndicators I talked to that are raising, you know, 50 to hundred or 50 to 250 from, you know, a lot of different, um, high net worth individuals. So, uh, you know, having one investor definitely makes it easier. Um, you don't have to do a syndication. So are they formed as like a, a tick? No. So that one, particularly, it was the three of us uh, partners threw money in and then he, he put in about 2 million and we bought the land for that. And we just did a JV, gotcha. uh, after talking with our SEC attorney, he's like, I would just do a JV that JV will own the land, will be able to sell the land and do what it wants to. And then when we actually go to do the ground up build out, that's when we can syndicate. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, if we want to bring in, so if we need to raise 6 million or 8 million and we have three liquid, uh, then we can syndicate the rest. Awesome. So what would you say the split is between ground up development and buying existing deals? Uh, that's a good question. So syndications for us, we've just traditionally, every deal's different. So we don't do like a traditional, like 70, 30, you know, I think that 70, 30 model was, is used more when you're buying like class A or you have to give away that much equity to make the return high enough to, for people to want to get in. We've got deals where we're 50, 50, where we're 65, 35, 65 to us. We have some that are, it was a really good deal and we're 70, 30 to us. It just depends. Some of them, you know, we, we try not to do deals where we're less than 50, 50, because, you know, we're putting our own money in too, and it just right. doesn't make sense. Uh, but the ground up, I mean, most people that I've talked to, their expected return is 35 to 40%. So the return's higher, but the, the view of it is that the risk is higher and you're not having any cash flow throughout the whole build until you start leasing it up. And again, I think people's fear of it is things could go wrong during the build out and then you run out of money. Right. So the, the returns are always higher on ground up than they are on existing multifamily. That makes sense. Now, how did you manage through, you know, inflation starting to come down, but you know, there's some, been some crazy price hikes, um, you know, on materials costs and, you know, at labor too, but mainly materials costs. So how, 
How do you manage that in a ground up deal? Well, for right now, the, the GC company that we work for, we've, they've done a bunch of stuff in central Ohio, uh, the well-known, and we've just kind of, kind of have all that built into the money, the, the funds that we think we'll need for the actual build out. But, you know, people that are, were doing developments in 18, 19, maybe in 20, and they were phased what we're seeing is that like maybe they completed phase one and phase two, but the numbers that they underwrote or they used back in 2018, 2019, they're not existent anymore. So they can't continue to be do phase three or phase four. That's where we see people selling off these phases for us. If we're underwriting it under current conditions and the numbers work, if the, if anything shifts and goes down, it's only going to be that much better of a deal. Um, and then we, we, you know, just like anything else, we, we underwrite for current pricing within the room for that to expand. Right. And the, the deal just has to work with that expansion. If it doesn't, then we don't do it. That makes sense. So what's your view on the second half of 2023? I mean, people, there's, you know, the, there's sayings out there, survive till 25 and, and that the second half of 2023, there's going to be all these bridge loan deals that are going to be coming back to market and there's going to, you know, people are licking their chops that they're going to get in uh, at these crazy, you know, uh, basis, you know, w- what's your take on that? Do you think it's going to happen? Um, curious on your take. Um, <laughs> I've heard all the same things. I'm just not seeing it. I mean, obviously we've heard, I'm sure everybody in multifamily's heard of the gentleman in Texas that lost a bunch of units. You know, right. I, I think if you have people that are, didn't buy a cap on their rate and they were underwriting aggressively and the deal only worked at three and a half or 4%. I think you'll see some problems. Uh, but we've, we did, when we were doing bridge debt two years ago, our bridge debt was at six and a half percent. And we just refied two properties in the last six months and we got sub six. So we were like, I think we got 5.65 and 5.85 on our debt. So, I mean, it, it, it didn't affect us at all. And we've got another, refi coming up this fall and another one uh, in January. And I mean, what we're seeing, it was just not the case. Right. You know, so again, not, not that it couldn't, you know, again. Right. No, it very, I yeah. mean, nobody has a crystal ball. Who knows whether it's going to come. You know, another thing that I think that could very well happen um, is that a lot of the lenders may extend, mm-hmm. you, know? you know, because, They've got some bigger fish to fry. I mean, some of these lenders that have office, you know, and people aren't going back to the office and it's 50% occupied. And, you know, from what I'm hearing that office, you know, the A properties are doing good in, in some, some markets, but the BCs are, are challenged. And so do the lenders really want to, you know, push the envelope on multifamily also? Um, you know, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see. But that's another yeah. potential is that these lenders extend. So the loan is come and due, but the lender extends it out for another year and gives them the opportunity to, you know, potentially refi. And yeah, because I think that's a that's the other thing, too, is that the banks don't want to take back all this property. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think it's in their best interest to extend, uh, but... It's like a case by case basis. And I think it just depends on how you bought, you know, if you bought aggressively with low margin and didn't underwrite correctly, 
a year and a half, two years ago, and now your stuff is coming due, you know, if it only worked at a three and a half, four percent, and now you're going to go to six and a half, yeah, you could definitely have a problem. Right. Um, So you guys do coaching also, don't you? Yeah. So we started doing some stuff. I don't know, I'd probably say a year and a half ago when I, when I was in the fire service, I was always a fire instructor for the state of Ohio, an EMS instructor. Like I loved taking people that didn't know anything and, and really helping them kind of have the light bulb come on. And so I was missing that, you know, I got out of the fire service. I'm doing this full time. Like, you know, we're not like a group that's like, Hey, it's $30,000 to join our mastermind or whatever. Like, it's not like that. To me, it's more, I love giving back if my college roommate would have blew me off when I was trying to get started, uh, I wouldn't have, I, who knows where I'd be. So for me, it's like a, it's a way for me to give back and try to help others. And, you know, I, that's kind of why it started was just um, a way for me to be able to kind of help, you know, I feel blessed to be in the position I'm in. And so I'm trying to help other people kind of get things figured out. No, that's, that's huge. Um, you know, that was one of the reasons why I started the podcast was, and I've, I've been around some wealthy people, but I never even knew that you could invest in these large syndications, you know, I mm-hmm. until five years ago. And I'm 53, so I'm a lot older than you are. And, you know, I want to let people know that there is a different way than just putting all your money in the stock market. You know, when you were talking before about, you know, <laughs> you know the stock market and investing in capital gains, you know, there's some people that are invested in mutual funds and they didn't even sell. Like they, and all of a sudden they get their, you know, tax statement at the end of the year and they they have all these capital gains. And they're like, what the heck? I didn't even sell anything. But the mutual fund company is buying and selling stocks and they're Mm -hmm. having to, you know, report the, the gains and then allocate that to each of the investors in the deal. So you're having to pay tax on that, you know? So that's, it's crazy. You didn't even, you didn't even sell and you're having to pay capital gains. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, definitely crazy out there. And like you said, I, I think there's a lot of people that don't know. I feel like I talk about it all the time and it's my world, but I mean, every day there's people I talk with that have no clue what I'm saying when we talk about syndicating or, or people ask like, how do we get, build a company the way we did? Like they just don't know what's out there. And uh, I really felt guilty in the beginning of like, I felt like I was trying to sell people stuff, but really it's like you said, providing an opportunity to educate people to say, look, there's, there's an other options out there. You don't have to just be giving all of the, your control to wall street and then being in, in no control of the money once it goes there. Or, you know, people love the fact that if they invest with us, they can send me an email and then get on a call with me or get on a call with Tim or, you know, we're not a big read. Right. You know, that's the other thing. A lot of people, they, they know of the REITs and the other funds that they can invest in, but you're never going to get anybody of importance at a, at a big REIT like that. Also, a REIT is, is like a stock. You're not going to get the depreciation allocated yeah. to you, you know, at, then, so you don't get the benefit. But that's the important part is, is really the education piece. For some reason, I'm <laughs> the same way. For some reason, like... It's just commonplace to invest in stocks and mutual funds and, and ETFs. So I wasn't that educated either, you know, and, but I still bought the stuff, you know, I was in a 401k and maybe you, 
you're at a company and you're in a 401k and you have five, five options, you know, mm-hmm. uh, aggressive, less aggressive and, you know, a bond fund, you know, and you just put your, an allocation and, and you just forget about it. But I think, um, you know, getting involved with this is putting the responsibility back on each individual. This is your money. You know, learn what you're going to, what you're investing in and, and understand, you know, how you make money in it and how much access you have. Like you have access to call Seth or email Seth where you don't have access to do that with a REIT or, you know, you, you invest in, in a stock. You can't call, you know, the, the CEO, you know, you can mm-hmm. read their 90, you know, their quarterlies, but that's about it. Um, so what lessons have you learned? You know, so say for the, for the syndicators out there, um, you know, you get involved and in the beginning, it's all about getting your first deal and then you have to manage the deal. Um, so what kind of lessons have you learned along the way? Oh, <laughs> that's a long list. I think my first, we'll take my first deal, for instance, you know, I learned quickly that I, I had no idea how to underwrite correctly or anything. I mean, I didn't even know what I was doing back then. I just bought the deal because I knew it would cash flow enough. Um, but making sure that you're looking at all the current and potential expense, expenses, uh, making sure that you have enough reserves and enough capital in the bank, because there's things that are going to come up that you didn't plan for. My first deal I bought, we, me and another investor bought it and it basically, you know, we closed, we had 50,000 in the bank. The original plan was that I was going to go down. I have a construction background and uh, whatnot through the fire service. Uh, and I was going to do renovations with a couple other contractors. We were going to kind of go slowly through the complex and, and, and we closed I had no idea what economic occupancy was. I had never heard of like heads on beds or them just kind of signing leases to get the place full before they sell. And we, the guy that was the onsite manager, we, we let him go probably the first couple of weeks. Well, when he left seven other tenants left because they were all family members. And then there was another three or four that weren't, were non-payers, but he basically was, he knew them, the former manager. And so it was, we could, I couldn't tell by looking at the leases or the financial statements that they didn't, that they weren't paying. Um, so we went from having 90, it was 94% occupied to about 76. Wow. In the first like month of owning it. And the first lesson I learned from a management company was they never called me and told me any of this until I went to get my owner payout. And it was like, 10,000 less than what I was anticipating. And we could barely cover the mortgage, barely cover the insurance. And I'm like, what in the heck happened? Well, I, I called a mentor uh, who had about 700 units at the time. And he was like, you got to raise more money. Uh, so I had to go out and privately raise additional uh, capital with promissory notes. And based on my character and people knowing me, that was that was it. They got no equity. It was literally just, they were lending it to me. Um, so I just, I learned a lot of lessons through that one and over the years, but I, w- I would say some big ones, making sure you how you understand the expenses and have them underwritten correctly, especially the taxes, uh, insurance, um, making sure you have enough in reserves and then making sure that your, your CapEx is and your due diligence is thoroughly done. Because I think that's a lot of places where people, 
they start off on the wrong foot immediately because they missed stuff in due diligence or they underestimate their capex and they go into the deal thinking they're good and then they get in trouble six, eight months down the road, a year down the road because they're out of money and the work's not done yet. And I think that those are those are some big ones that, you know, if people aren't 100% sure how to do it, then before you take somebody's money and you put it into a deal, like get with somebody and learn, you know, make sure you're underwriting those things and estimating those things correctly. Cause you know, I don't know what profession you came from before, but if you're a full-time syndicator now and maybe you had no background in any of that and you may never, other than doing some things around your personal residence, you may have never have ever really dealt with contractors. And so to try to, you know, if you go into like a 50 unit apartment complex and you're going to renovate 30 out of the 50 in two years, accurately, planning for and calculating the cost if you're off you know if you're off by five thousand a door that's going to wreck your deal and so i think those are those are all big important things that uh new people need to be need to learn from somebody yeah i mean that's that's a great um a great reason to if you're new and you're going after your first deal to you know partner with somebody that has experience because you know the they are going to, you know, have been through the trenches on a number of deals and have had these learning lessons. So they will, one, you know, challenge the assumptions in the underwriting. And then two, you know, deals don't go in a straight line every time. You know, you have a, you have a plan for it, but then all of a sudden something happens and you need to pivot. And so, you know, an experienced operator may have seen that before. And so, hey, here's what we did on this other deal. You know, maybe we should do that here. And, Mm -hmm. you know, versus being completely new and you're just trying to figure it out without having. So what you did by calling, you know, a mentor, somebody that had a bunch of doors, uh, had the experience, you know, was very smart. Uh, You mentioned the occupancy dropping. You know, that's something, you know, for anybody that's new, I was told that on my first syndication deal, like from other syndicators, they're like, watch it, you know, your occupancy is going to drop. And I'm like, no, no, no. You know, I don't think that's going to happen on my, on my deal. And I was the same, you know, we were like 95% or 96% or whatever it was. And it dropped into to the low 80s. And I was like, holy cow. And it scared the heck out of me. Um, thankfully, you know, we were able to, we were, we did have third party property management and they had a lot of properties in the area. So they were able to take maintenance guys off of the other properties and bring them onto our site. And so it actually helped us because we were able to renovate a lot of the units a lot faster in the business plan and and then lease them up at higher rents. Um, But there was a period where it was, where, where it was scary, you know, like you didn't know. Um, Another thing you brought up was taxes. You know, that same property, we underwrote uh, 80% of the purchase price for, um, and then whatever the going rate is for that county. Well, we just happened to be in an aggressive county and they valued our property higher than the purchase price. We're like, holy cow. Well, that's 20%, you know, or more higher than what we had in the plan. So we had to hire, you know, property tax consultant that, you know, actually went into litigation and we were able to bring it down. Um, But 
that again was like, holy cow, what are we going to do? And partnering with somebody, you know, that was like, don't worry, you know, call this guy, you know, he, he'll help us out. And then we were, but it didn't, it didn't fix it in its entirety. We had to pivot and figure something else out and we were able to get higher rents. Um, but those are all, all great, you know, learning lessons. Some of those things come from education, you know, from coaching, from talking to mentors. Some, some things you're just going to have to learn by doing it. Right. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. I think you, you'll learn more on your first deal than you can learn in a lifetime of reading the books and talking to other people and whatnot. But it's, it's definitely helpful to have the kind of phone a friend option, you know, when you're, or, Hey, just get a second set of eyes to look at this to make sure that what you're thinking, especially if it's your first deal or second deal, making sure that what your, your assumptions you're making are accurate and you're not being too aggressive. Yeah. I, I love that. That I haven't heard that before, phone or friend. You know, when I think of networking, you know, networking can be about, you know, finding, you know, partners for new deals. It could be finding investors to invest in deals, but it can also just be meeting other syndicators and then they tell stories about challenges that they're going through. And then all of a sudden you have a similar challenge and within five minutes you can call that person and they're like, this is how we handled it. Mm-hmm. You know, where if you didn't have that relationship, that contact, hadn't had that discussion, you may be trying to figure out, well, heck, how the heck do I handle this? You know, and there's so there's so many different things that, that can happen at a property. And so knowing people to call is, is crucial. Yeah, absolutely. So inflation's coming down. Do you think that, what what's your crystal ball in terms of going forward? You know, is the Fed... Fed just paused interest rates. They're say that they're going to increase by 25 basis points, you know, twice more. Inflation's coming down. Um, do you think that that trend continues? You know, how do you guys look at the future? Uh, I, I think that we're going to be where we're at for the next at least 12 months. I mean, I don't, I don't foresee any drastic changes at all. I think I just saw something the other day where China was also printing trillions of dollars to try to f- fix their economy. And it's, you know, I feel like if that is happening over there, it's just going to, con- like, there's not, I don't see us having any big swings in the opposite direction of things coming down. I think we're going to hold in this pattern for a while. Hold in this pattern. So interest rates stay kind of where they are. Um, and inflation is a little, a little above where they want it to be. Is that? Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think prices are going down anytime soon. And I mean, could the rates go up a couple more times? Possibly. It wouldn't surprise me if it does, but I don't think that we're going to be trending downward anytime soon. All right. So then let me ask you, you know, I'm in the, we're both in the multifamily world now, but you know, prior to five years ago, I was not. And you know, the residential market has, you know, Prices went crazy, right? And and now you have a lot of homeowners that have rates at three percent or four percent, and they're they're not going to sell um, because where are they going to go if they, you know, um, if they have to get a new property at six or seven percent? So, what do you think happens with single family right now? There's you know a, a big wide gap between 
kind of the cost to own versus the cost to rent. You know, it's much more attractive to rent in, in today's market. Um, even with rental prices having gone up over the last several years, you know, so how do you see that the residential market impacting multifamily? Uh, I mean, I think that's why we all love multifamily is that if, if people can't afford to buy because the rates are higher, they're going to be stuck renting. And then, like you said, the, the, the supply, at least in my area, the supply was already low, but now like you, you know, the, because people have such an attractive rate, they're going to stay in that house longer than maybe they want to, but they don't want to give up the rate that they have. Right. And then, you know, if you would have sold a year ago, you could have, like in my area, you could have made a pretty nice penny on your home, but then you're going to have to turn around and pay that same amount to somebody else. So I think that we're, I think it's just going to kind of be stagnant for a little while. And I think it's going to help push people into an apartments, but you know, if you have the right, if you have the right apartment cl- type class in the right area, what is you know, the right apartment class? Well, uh, you, you I think it depends it on who you're talking to. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I think we, we really like the B class stuff at this point, you know, true C class is getting is at least in my area is getting really crunched. Um, the rates have flattened out a lot in, in traditional C class areas. So no matter what you do to that complex, the people that will live there can only afford so much. Right. And, you know, in, in Columbus, there's a huge um, shortage of people that can pay the rent that's people are asking. And I know they just dumped like 35 million into a fund to help subsidize people's rents. So I think you're going to see a lot of that. They don't want people on the street. They don't want a bunch of foreclosures. You know, there's a ton of uh, loans that got behind during COVID and I'm pretty sure that the least the people I've talked with, they just kind of extended the the loans on those folks. But, you know, I, th- I think, yes, I think it, we're, there's going to be a ton of demand for apartments. Uh, but to continue to see the rate increase or the, the rent increases like we've seen, it's it's going to be particular to certain areas of communities. Yeah. So I what I've been seeing, and I don't know if your market is like this, but in some of the, say, say, I'm in a lot of different deals in growth markets like Arizona and Texas and Carolinas and Georgia and that Tennessee and those types of things. Um, What I'm seeing is that top line rent growth is kind of hitting a ceiling, but there are still units that say are classic units that haven't been renovated. And so if those are renovated, people are still renting those at, you know, significant rent bumps. It's just the organic rent growth, just not renovating at all. You can't raise it by 5%, 10%, 15% like you were doing before. Um, But if you actually do the work and in a value add play and, and renovate, then they are getting the rent bumps. And that's not really being talked about much in the, in the news, you know, so the news, I think just, talks about the top line rent mm-hmm. is, is kind of, you know, hit a hit off ceiling, but I think there's still value add plays out there, you know? Yeah. It, it, if that's a great point. The right basis. So, yeah. So the, I think that, like we're seeing that in, um, we, we kind of changed the way that we were doing a deal that we bought, you know, the average rents were two to $300 below market when we bought it. And those units, what we're finding is we're still getting that increase 
But we're not pushing into like new heights. We're, so we're just going, like you said, if you buy something and it's $500 a month, but market is 700 or 750, you can still achieve that 700 or 750. But trying to go from buying something where the rents are 700 and you're going to try to go to nine, right. that's where I feel like the the struggle really is for a lot of people right now. But but yeah, if you can find something that's has below market rents or the the seller you know, maybe their basis was super low in the deal and they bought it a long time ago and they're, you know, they just kept it low and full. Those deals, I think, still pencil out well. Right. Very cool. So um, what is your recommendation to people that, you know, they're trying to, let's say a passive investor, you know, they all they've invested in in the stock market before. Now, how do they get educated to, to get into this space? Well, if they're trying to get in as an investor, I think you start doing some research and looking at people that do what we do and then having start building a relationship because the biggest thing for me when an investor calls that I don't know is, I mean, it takes a while for that relationship to build because one, I want to understand what you're looking for. You know, just because you call me and say, hey, I've got 100,000 or 50,000 and I want to invest in a deal you're doing, like, well, what are your expectations? What are your risk tolerances? What are you looking for? You know, I want to understand that because then I can plug you into the right deal. I think the the worst thing for me and for an investor is to get matched up in the wrong deal where maybe we put them in something where it's too risky and then they're calling all the time wanting to figure out what's going on or or you have to defer a, a, pay, a pref payment because of something that changed. If you didn't talk about those things up front and all of a sudden that's new to them, it can be a problem. And I think as an investor, you want to make sure that you link up with a group that has a, that has experience that demonstrates good communication skills, whether that's monthly or quarterly emails, or they're available for phone calls or just answer your questions. You know, I I don't know any syndicator that wants to be called every week or every other day because there's not always a, a good update, but we've never had any problems with investors because we update them regularly and if they have additional questions they're free to contact us and getting that out there so i think those are those are big things to look for uh if you're trying to get into this and you know i think building a relationship with people that do this is is again it goes back to the jockey not the horse where who you're investing with is more important than necessarily the deal that it or what they're telling you yeah i i i think that's and, and these deals last a long time. I mean, they're, they're three, four, five years, I mean, a lot of times. So, you know, you want to know who you're doing business with. And, and yep. you know, so I, I like that. Hey, so where do you go from now? I mean, you, you went from, you know, calling your buddy and saying, how do you get into this thing to, to building this thing up to 2,000 doors? You know, what's kind of the next big stretch goal if you have one? Uh, I think just these developments that we're working on right now in, in uh, the Columbus area with everything that's coming here with Intel and Microsoft just announced they're coming and it's, it's just a lot of crazy things happening. So I think it's our main focus is, is making sure these are completed and successful. You know, we're still looking at other multifamily deals We're we're looking, uh, I would say central Ohio and then Jacksonville, Florida is the other market that we're really looking in. Um, and we're just continuing to add to our team and bring the right people in place and leadership to where uh, things continue to grow. And, and we are kind of reducing our blind spots. But that's, you know, I, I don't like to say like you have a lot of people be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to buy a thousand doors this year. Or I'm going to try to get to this number. Like, I don't know that we really have a 
growth metric other than continuing to have successful deals, making sure what we have in contract closes, making sure that what we're working on is executed correctly. Those are probably the, the I'd say the next 12 month goal. That's, that's what, that's what it is. And just watching what's happening in the market and, and with rates and whatnot and pull the trigger if something makes sense. So, but in addition, so maybe you didn't say, okay, um, a door goal or whatever, but you did mention, you know, learning about your blind spots. And like, I think that that's important, you know, like personal development, company development, like that doesn't stop, you know, Mm -hmm. like you you, look, you're tremendous success, you know, and, but it's always like, okay, well now how can I learn more? You know, how can I? go on to the next thing? How can I, you know, help my, my investors more? How can I help the community more? And part of that is, you know, self-development. And so I, I, lo- I like hearing that. Hey, um, if people want to get to know you more, what's the best way to f- for them to reach out to you and learn more? Uh, they can look me up. I'm on all social media platforms. Uh, and then our website, they can go to there and, and um, send me an email through that. And uh, that's probably the best way. All right. What's what's the website? Uh, it's www.thestreamgroups.com. And what is the significance to the stream groups? How'd you come up with the stream groups? Uh, so Tim, my partner, Tim, and I, we're being firemen. We're always, uh, we've been around acronyms for our whole lives. So it's a it's an acronym that, that we created, but we, the the thought of it being is that everybody, when we got started, was talking about passive income and having multiple streams multiple of income. Streams of income. Yep. And so that's why the stream group is what it always reminds us to be working towards that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on listeners. I hope that you enjoyed that one. Uh, I wish you much success and uh, until next time, sign off. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 